Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday morning, which means time for Bible study. I'm glad that you all are here with me this morning. Um, we're going to be continuing our Genesis study today. I'm going to give everyone just a minute to kind of pop on and get live with us. A reminder as we begin that this study is interactive. And so I want to encourage you to announce that you're here. Let us know you're here down below. Um, say where you're from. If you're not from Dallas or from St. Michael, we'd love to know you better. Um, say hi to your friends, because I bet there are some people here who you haven't seen in real life for a while. And so would love for you to be able to say hi to them here and ask questions. This is a great opportunity for us to be able to answer questions that you have or have had about this study and make sure that we are able to make this as good an experience as possible. So Say hi to one another down below. Let us know you're here and let us know where you're from if you are not from St. Michael here in Dallas because it was fun last week to see that we had people from all over the country joining live with us in this study. So a reminder that we only have two more weeks left after this week, this week, and then two more weeks. So we finish the last Wednesday of April on April 29th. So I hope that you have brought some good questions today so that we can tie up Genesis really well in advance for next year's study. So today we're going to be looking at chapters 41 through 43 of Genesis. Grab your Bibles. Those are those books that have dust on them next to your nightstand. Grab your Bibles and we will be able to get this study going well. Let's open with a prayer. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together today, give you thanks for the gift of this Easter season, that we may be filled with your inspiration to help hear your spirit speak to us and give us courage to do the work you've given us to do, to use our skills as we can to help extend your kingdom here on earth. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I should have said at the very beginning, happy Easter to all of you. Hope you had an excellent Easter season. Lent is over. So, hallelujah, right? Say it, hallelujah. We're going to begin with chapter 41. Open up those books and we'll get started. Now, as I've said before, I like to give a scope of the lesson because it really does help um, me to understand kind of where we're going, the map of the day. So chapters 41 through 43 really have four big sections. The first is going to be Pharaoh's dream. The second is Joseph's rise to power. Joseph's rise to power. The third is that the brothers, Joseph's brothers, Jacob's sons, go down to Egypt, and then the brothers return to Egypt. So we've got these four big sections today, Pharaoh's dream, Joseph's rise, and the brothers' trips to Egypt, number one, and number two. Last week, I got a question after Bible study um, that I thought was pretty good. So we're going to kick it off there. In chapter 40, the cupbearer and the baker are all in jail for three days. And then in chapter 42, Joseph's brothers are in jail for three days. Now here comes Easter and it's the third day. Why all the three days? Um, so I've said this before in our studies, and so it bears repeating that there are some numbers in the Bible that are seen as holy. There are some numbers that are seen as not so holy. And so when you see some of those holy numbers, three is definitely one of them. Three, seven, 12, 40, those are all holy numbers. And it's very possible that when the writers use those numbers, they're not intending to give us literal numbers, literal time frames. Instead, they're really implying that something godly is happening here, that God is in that moment in some way. So when you see three days, either in prison or something like that, you should definitely kind of hear that God's present. God is there doing something in that moment. Not that it was literally three days. It could have been three days, but probably not. So thank you for that question, um, which reminds me, 
Ask your questions in this thread. You will see Monica Rosser is here with us this morning. She helps to pay attention to the comment thread while I'm teaching, and she will ping me if there are questions that pop up in the thread. She'll let me know what those questions are, um, sometimes maybe gather a couple questions together in one macro question, and that's really helpful to me. So please do ask the questions in the thread below. Monica will be attending to that. Um, and as she always does, she has her email address in the comments as well. So in case you feel like you don't really wanna ask the question in front of the whole group, I know some people don't feel comfortable with that, then shoot her an email right now because she'll get that email along with looking at the comment thread and she'll be able to ping me and let me know if you have some questions. So again, welcome everyone. Let's get started. Chapter 41, verse one. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile and there came up out of the Nile seven sleek and fat cows and they grazed in the reed field. Then seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Then he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Then seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Pharaoh awoke, and it was a dream. In the morning, his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. All right, so we kick off chapter 41, Pharaoh's had a bad dream. So Pharaoh has had these disturbing dreams and he is troubled in his spirit. And he calls his magicians, he calls his interpreters, he calls his wise men. So remember last week, we talked about how dream interpretation was a very real skill. It was a highly valued skill in the ancient world and particularly in certain cultures. And Egypt was as important as anyone when it came to dream interpretation. It was critical that people understood what God or the gods were trying to tell them in their dreams. And so they would gather together people who claimed and could maybe prove that they could somehow interpret dreams because it's through that dream interpretation that it uh, people, leaders, those in power, whomever, were able to make important decisions about the future. And so Pharaoh being the most powerful of all, would have had a cadre of people around him who could help interpret his dreams. Except no one could interpret this dream. And so, remember last time, last chapter, the cupbearer who was in prison and had Joseph interpret his dream had come back and was now serving Pharaoh again in his court, but had forgotten Joseph? Well, all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And now the cupbearer may have forgotten Joseph, and this may have jogged his memory, but it does also sound more likely that the cupbearer had forgotten Joseph because it didn't help the cupbearer at all. But now that Pharaoh needs someone to interpret his dreams and no one can interpret them, if the cupbearer goes off and finds a good dream interpreter for Pharaoh, then maybe he's not the one who interprets the dream, but he sure is the one who helped Pharaoh to interpret the dream. Good for him and for his own longevity. And so the cupbearer, oh, oh, remembers Joseph. And when he remembers Joseph, he tells Pharaoh about Joseph and Pharaoh sends for Joseph. So look at verse nine. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my faults today. Once Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own meaning. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when he told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each according to his dream. As he interpreted to us, so it turned out. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. So effectively what the cupbearer is saying here is, we know a guy and that guy interprets dreams and his interpretations come true because I imagine there would have been plenty of dream interpreters around and yet they weren't very good at it. 
And so the cupbearer is saying, not only is this a dream interpreter, this Hebrew who was with the captain of the guard, but his interpretations came true. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was hurriedly brought out of the dungeon. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's important to note right here. God, Joseph sets up his gifts as gifts from God. It is very important that we see that the way that Joseph responds to Pharaoh in this moment, Joseph is giving God the credit for any skill that he has, including this dream interpretation. And why that is critical is if you put yourself in Joseph's shoes, Joseph is all by himself, right? He's got no family. He's got no one looking for him, no one coming to his rescue. He's been in prison. And even though he's not been treated badly, he is in prison. He gets one shot at Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants him to interpret his dreams. And Joseph could have puffed himself up and told Pharaoh how great he was, how great he is, how great his dream interpretations can be, and why Pharaoh needs him. And instead, Joseph, the first thing Joseph says to Pharaoh is, listen, it's not about me. It's God's gift that he puts in me. And I can help you because God is in me. Now, this is Egypt, right? Egypt is not only a country that would have had a different system of religious beliefs, right? A different God or gods than what the Hebrew God would be, but... In Egypt, who is the God incarnate? Pharaoh. And so Joseph is taking a big risk here by saying to Pharaoh, listen, God has done this as if Pharaoh is not God. Joseph is hearkening back to his own faithfulness, to his own belief system that flies directly in the face of the Egyptian system, and it's risky. But Joseph does what is right. And when Joseph does what is right, it pays off. Now, I see a question here from David. Is it that no one could interpret dreams or no one wanted to? Who wants to be the bearer of bad news? Oh, that's a great question, David. So uh, let me see how I want to go about this. Um, I would say first, let's always keep in mind that this is not a story being written by a journalist, right? There isn't a person sitting there next to Joseph, writing down everything as Joseph does it and what he said, she said, whatever. This is a story being told hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the events that they depict. So the storytellers are crafting the narrative of this story in a very particular way. Is it possible that Pharaoh's wise men tried to interpret the dreams and yet they couldn't? That seems most likely to me. I'll tell you what, if I am a, an interpreter, a dream interpreter, a wise man, a magician or whatever in Pharaoh's court, then I know that my livelihood, my very life is dependent on whether Pharaoh likes me or not. And so if Pharaoh comes with a troubling dream and asks me to interpret it, it is almost certain that I'm not going to say, mm, sorry, can't help you. Uh, no. I think that Pharaoh's dream interpreters would have for sure tried. But I imagine that if they couldn't quite interpret that dream, and of course, we all have to figure out what is really going on here. You know, is dream interpretation something that's legit? Um, I had a number of emails from last week about the idea of dreams as being purposeful or God given or all that stuff. Um, and so in one of the exchanges, I was writing with someone and I said, I do think that when we follow God's path and we work on ourselves and we try to be disciplined and faithful and we open ourselves up as much as possible 
for God's spirit to work within us, that God really does reveal to us some truths that are not from us, that are really from God. Um, But it takes our discipline to develop the ability to discern perhaps what is godly and what isn't. Um, And I think definitely as Episcopalians, um, we believe that that discernment comes in a corporate sense. Um, No one person gets to say, God spoke to me and then we will do this thing. We really do believe that we all kind of gather together and that the community in their own work as a community helps to understand and interpret the revealed truth of God. We definitely believe that God is still alive and active and working, right? God didn't just set things in motion and let us go, right? God is here. And so God's revelation, God continues to reveal to us over time, which is one of the reasons why Episcopalians tend to be relatively comfortable with um, changing the way that we do things thoughtfully over time, um, because we do believe that God can be revealing deeper, better, more complete truths over time, that it wasn't God didn't stop working 2000 years ago, that God is still working now. Um, and so I would say that Joseph's interpretation of the dream may have ended up just being right. Not that he was the only one who tried to interpret, but that his interpretation was just the best one. Um, I should also note that when Joseph says to Pharaoh, the gift I have is a gift given by God. It's, it's not about me. It's about God. That the other big idea that we can learn about the storytellers, the story writers, is that there's always this sense of whose God is best. And for those of you who've been with me for a while this year or for the last few years, um, you know that in the ancient world, we may toss around the idea of monotheism, but monotheism is a pretty, in its strictest sense, is a very modern construct. Monotheism in the ancient world just meant you only believed in a single God. It didn't mean that you believed there was only a single God. And so take the Jewish people, for example, the ones who are writing this story, what this the Jewish storytellers would have believed is that Yahweh wasn't the only God, but that Yahweh was the best God. Now, we, yeah, people may take take issue with what I just said, um, but I'm just, I'm gonna stick with it. Jews, among others, would have only believed in a single God, but when it came to their interactions with, say, the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Greeks or Romans or whomever. When push came to shove, what really happened is that the Jews believed that Yahweh was the best, the strongest, the most complete, the number one, whatever you want to say. And in this instance of the story, we see that this is true, that the Jewish writers are saying, are really teeing up Joseph and Pharaoh as kind of a battle of the gods, right? Pharaoh being the god incarnate in Egypt. And of course, Egypt Egypt had a pantheon of gods. And this Hebrew, who believed in a single god, and he is bringing Yahweh to the table to effectively battle for wits with the other gods. And the kind of battle that they have is going to prove which God is best. That's really why this moment where Joseph chooses to perhaps be humble, but in a real sense, make Yahweh number one is in a way pretty risky. All right, let's keep going. In verse 25, the story continues. Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, as are the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, 
God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. After them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. So Joseph is interpreting Pharaoh's dream. Joseph is effectively warning Pharaoh of what will come, but do not miss the way that the language is used here. Joseph says, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. All right? That's a big deal. Joseph is saying, hey, Pharaoh, you might be God here, but let's talk about the real God and what God is about to do. So what God is about to do to you and to your people and to your gods and to you, right? Joseph is claiming the true God, and this is super risky. But as we'll see, it kind of plays out well. That's the end of our first section. So remember I said there are four sections today. So Pharaoh's dream has now been interpreted. Section two is Joseph's rise. We're going to see Pharaoh's reaction to Joseph's interpretation. So as a reminder, we'll pause here that I do love questions. It helps me to make this teaching as effective and impactful as possible. And so do write your questions down below. Monica is monitoring those questions. Um, and in addition, if you kind of scroll up to in those comments, you'll see that Monica has also posted her email address because if you're not comfortable posting a question in front of the whole class, then send her an email and she'll be able to ping me during this session or save it for next week so that we can make sure that these teachings are as helpful to you as possible. So end of first section. Um, I always see one more question. Does the Catholic Church use the Pope as a dream reader? Uh, no. There's your quick answer. Um, so, no, the, the Pope is, haha, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, so, in Roman Catholicism, the Pope is not God, but the Pope is believed to be, in the strictest sense, infallible. And that means that the Pope can't make a mistake. Um, fallibility, infallibility is tricky. Um, I would say that. The uh, immediate past Pope, Benedict, definitely lived into and believed in that infallibility. I would argue that Francis um, does not perhaps subscribe to that infallibility theology, although to my knowledge, that doctrine has not been changed. Um, and so whereas bishops, priests, bishops, whomever are, you know, we're all human, we all make mistakes, we all blah, blah, blah. Once a cardinal becomes a bishop, I'm sorry, once a cardinal becomes a pope, there is something that happens within their humanity that makes them infallible. Eh, you know, I, that's nice. I, I don't mind, but I don't think that's true. Okay, let's keep going. Section two, Joseph's rise. Let's look, we're still in chapter 41. This is verse 37. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find anyone else like this? One in whom the spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's response to Joseph is uh, decisive and quick and extreme, right? So just put yourself in this situation, right? Joseph is this Hebrew kid sold as a slave, imprisoned because he is apparently having an affair with Potiphar's wife. He's there in prison. He interprets a dream and effectively he is... Nobody, nobody. And yet Pharaoh has this troubling dream. Joseph lucks out that the cupbearer mentions him to Pharaoh, comes up clean shaven, interprets a dream, but in a way that is not, um, 
not as good as it could be. You know, I think that a lot of people in Pharaoh's court would take any dream that Pharaoh had and make it out to be good news. Nobody wants to give Pharaoh bad news. But Joseph is faithful to God. Joseph understands that his gift comes from God, and he knows that in this moment, he is to be faithful to that gift, but faithful to God even more. And it pays off. Pharaoh gives Joseph an extreme amount of power. Joseph is now number two in all of Egypt. Joseph is now like the chief of staff, the COO of the entire Egyptian nation. Pharaoh's going to be like eating grapes down the Nile while Joseph is making sure everything happens the way it should. Joseph knows through this dream that there are going to be seven good years and seven bad years. And so Joseph begins to plan accordingly. Joseph saves up all of the grain he can, and then he's able to make Egypt wealthy. Let's we have two threads going on right here in this chapter, so I'm going to pause that thread. We're going to get to the verses that talk about what Joseph did, but I want to kind of pull out a few verses about uh, Joseph's life, right? Because Joseph doesn't just get power. Joseph gets a whole life now, and it's important for us to note. So look at verse 45. In addition to giving Joseph power, verse 45 says, Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephenath Paneah, and he gave him Aseneth, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. Thus, Joseph gained authority over the land of Egypt. Now jump down to verse 50. Before the years of famine came, Joseph had two sons, whom Aseneth, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The second he named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. All right, so let's take a pause here because anyone who has been with me through Genesis should immediately say, wait a minute, marrying the right person is very important. Joseph has not married the right person. Right? We have story after story. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of these stories about when you don't marry in the family, things go wrong. And so here we have Joseph who is marrying outside of the family, like way outside the family. Okay, This isn't like a cousin or a second cousin or someone down the street. This is an Egyptian priest's daughter. What in the world is happening here? And I ask what in the world is happening here because as the story continues, way out of Genesis, right now we're talking about Israelite history. When the kingdom is established and all of Israel is one nation, right, under King David, and then Solomon builds the temple, right, you get this one moment when, in time with David and Solomon where all of Israel is united. Then Solomon dies and the kingdom splits and you get the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You get Judah and Israel. So Israel means a lot of different things depending on what time period you're talking about. Um, but when the kingdom splits north and south, what happens is that Ephraim becomes a very powerful tribal group. So Manasseh and Ephraim are not two sons who will just kind of fade into oblivion like so many of Jacob's grandchildren will fade into oblivion. No, 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 no. Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, become very important in the life of Israel. How in the world do Joseph's sons from an Egyptian priest's daughter become important in the life of Israel? It's a very good question. Thank you. Um, I think that the easiest way to answer this question is with an answer that is not going to be very satisfactory. The answer to that question is sometimes foreigners are seen as bad and sometimes they're seen as good. Sometimes there are people who are seen as low class who are not like you and people who are seen as high class who are not like you. When we talk about the story of Israel, marrying really close 
but outside of the good Jewish order, so that would be like the Canaanites and the Philistines and others like that, that is seen as bad news because effectively that's low class. Marrying a, an Egyptian priest's daughter, hey, that's kind of seen as high class. So in a way, and I know this is not satisfying, <laughs> effectively we are seeing some of the human inconsistencies, the human imperfection of the storytellers themselves with this little moment where it seems perfectly good, not even good, maybe actually real good that Joseph marries this high-class Egyptian when we have been told time and time again, marrying outside the family, when you marry like the low-class neighbors is not okay. You know, it's, I'll get myself in trouble if I keep talking about this. So we're just gonna stop there and say that, yes, a close reader knows that Joseph's not supposed to marry an Egyptian, duh. We've had people jump through huge hoops to marry the right people in the right bloodline. And here Joseph goes off and marries some high-class Egyptian girl and apparently just fine. So, sorry, that's all, that's all we get. Now we're gonna pause that thread and go back to the whole Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and things are gonna go well for Joseph. Look at verse 53. Now we get to the point where Joseph's interpretations begin to come true. Verse 53. The seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. And since the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the world came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine became severe throughout the world. Joseph has prepared Egypt really well. So, as you might imagine, when there's great surplus, right? When things are going really well, most people like to spend everything, right? Um, in effect, what people had done around Egypt is they kind of made it rain, right? They took everything that was extra and they just spent it and used it and had parties and they just loved life. Joseph reigned all that in, in Egypt. Instead of burning all the extra on stupid stuff, Joseph built massive storehouses, stored all of this surplus grain so that the Egyptians had what they needed, but they didn't live large with all the extra. Instead, they saved what they had, knowing that, hey, famine is coming. Now, we may say Joseph knew this was gonna happen because he interpreted the dream. That is the way the storytellers have told the story. But we also know this story, right? Look at what is happening right now, right? We are a couple months into a major market downturn, right? The economy is severely beaten down by this coronavirus quarantine shutdown, right? It's hurting a lot of people. Now, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that everybody who is taking an hour off their morning right now and joining me for Bible study are probably in a very similar boat to us where we had more than we needed back when everything was good. Did you save enough? Did you spend too much? Did you overextend when you needed far less so that when time came like this, which is sort of like famine in Egypt, did you have enough grain stored up in your storehouses? Or are you really vulnerable and hurting because you just burned off on fun stuff, good stuff, but not necessary stuff when, you know, the, the corn was high? Effectively, what Joseph has done here is he has put Egypt in the power seat 
all over the known world, which would have been North Africa, Middle East, even Southern Europe, all over the Mediterranean and beyond, probably down into East Africa, Ethiopia and other places. This famine's going to hit everybody. And it's years of famine. This isn't a month of famine or a year of famine, years of famine. Egypt is sitting pretty. They've saved everything that they were able to save through those seven big years so that when the lean years come, they've got plenty on hand. And that means everyone else is going to have to come to them and buy from them. And Egypt is going to get stupid wealthy. Joseph's done good work and he's ready to sell to the world. That brings us to the end of the second section. Now we're going to get to sections three and four, which are kind of part one, part two of the same story. The next few chapters, in fact, we're only going to get to the beginning of this of this next story, is focused on the way that Joseph interacts with his brothers, right? These brothers that sold him into slavery, thought he was dead, and let him go are going to need Joseph now in a way that they never did before. And so we're going to get into chapters 42 and 3, but know that that's only going to be kind of part one and two of a multi-part story that will continue next week. So a reminder, as we reach the end of this second section, that I do love questions. Um, so do write questions down below. Monica's um, monitoring those questions. Um, give some feedback. If you've got some ideas or observations, I love to hear those as well. Um, and like I said at the beginning, let people know you're here. Tell us hello and let us know if you're not from Dallas, from St. Michael, where are you from? Because it's fun to see people joining from all over the country. All right, seeing no extra questions right now. Let's keep going. Section three of four for today. Joseph's brothers go down to Egypt. So the big idea here is that Joseph is seeking true repentance from his brothers. Joseph is really looking for his brothers to have learned something, to be sorry for what they did to him so many years ago. So when his brothers appear before him, like a surprise, Joseph takes the opportunity to effectively test them. So hold that in your mind over all of these next chapters because it helps understand Joseph's motivation. Chapter 42, number one, or verse one. Oh, we have a question, hold on. Oh, not really a question, really just a observation about dream interpretation. That's from Nancy. I think that's very interesting. You all may want to read Nancy's comment. Um, she says that Pharaoh seems very fragile, um, that a dream can change all his actions, can radically change the way that the kingdom is run. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting observation. Um, I also want to say, just as a reiteration, this is a story. This story is being told by a good storyteller. It is not meant to be some kind of historian's accurate telling. You know, it's not a historical biography, so to speak, where we're looking at getting as factual a line of action as possible. This is really a story. And so this happened hundreds of years before the story was written. I would say that Joseph's rise to power would have been far more incremental than what is implied in this story. I can imagine that the interpretation of the dream, you know, kind of made Pharaoh feel decent about Joseph and said, hey, let's get this kid something to do. And then Joseph did whatever jo Pharaoh gave him to do well. And so Pharaoh gave him a little more to do. And he did that well. And a little more to do. And he did that well. And that his rise to being number two in Egypt wasn't just a fickle decision in one moment, but what had been something that grew over time. But in hindsight, right, when they're telling the story, the story is so much better. If all of a sudden Pharaoh says, poof, Joseph is now the best ever, and he's going to have control over everything. And it gets us to the real meat of the story a lot faster. There you go. Let's look at chapter 42, verse 1. 
When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at one another? That is so funny. I love that. As a parent, how many of you as parents have those moments with your kids where something bad happens and they all just kind of look at each other, right? I don't know how many times in my life I have said, don't look at me, fix it. Or don't look at me, clean it up. Or, don't look at me. Or, I mean, you know, it's one of those things like, yo, get to work, right? You spilled that thing. What do you do? You clean it up. Why are you looking at me? Or someone gets hurt. Don't look at me. Go help them, right? And this is such a funny moment that is so very honest, right? Jacob's like, why are you looking at each other? It's great. Okay, verse two. I have heard, Jacob says, that there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Simple enough. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come to him. Thus, the sons of Israel were among the other people who came to buy grain for the famine had reached the land of Canaan. And so very simply, the famine is in Canaan. The famine is back in the old country where Joseph came from. And now Joseph's brothers need to come to Egypt to buy grain, just like everyone else around the world is coming to Egypt to buy grain. So are Joseph's brothers. But they come without Benjamin. Let's keep going. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. It was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Although Joseph had recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph also remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. All right. So in this moment, things get interesting. Joseph's brothers show up to buy some grain and Joseph knows who they are, but they don't know who he is. And that could be for any number of reasons, right? I mean, if you thought you killed your brother or you thought you did something that got your brother killed and it's been years, even a decade, you're not looking for him, right? He's dead. Not only that, but here Joseph is, big deal in Egypt, the biggest deal in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, and he's probably dressed up, right? He's got all the shiny stuff on and the headdress on, he's probably got the makeup on and all that stuff, and so he doesn't even look like himself. So not only are they not looking for Joseph because they think he's dead, but Joseph doesn't look like Joseph in this moment. And so Joseph really is in the power seat here. But we see that Joseph remembers the dreams that he had as a boy. Joseph is a dream interpreter. And if we remember all the way back before he was sold, why, was his, why did his brothers sell him in the first place? Because Joseph was annoying. And he would have those dreams about being better than everyone else, being above everyone else, everyone bowing to him. And rather than being smart enough to not tell them about those dreams, Joseph went and shoved those dreams in their faces, really making them mad. And so Joseph remembers way back when that he had those early dreams and that those dreams meant that this day was going to come. And look, the day has finally come. Let's keep going. End of verse nine. Joseph said to them, you are spies and you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Ha! But Joseph said to him, no, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of a certain man in the land of Canaan. The youngest, however, is now with our father and one and one is no more. Ew. But Joseph said to them, it is just as I have said to you, you are spies. Here is how you shall be tested. As Pharaoh lives, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Let one of you go and bring your brother while the rest of you remain in prison in order that your words may be tested. Whether there is truth in you or else as Pharaoh lives, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in prison for three days. Another three days. Let's just keep going because the story is good. 
Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here where you are imprisoned. The rest of you shall go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Thus, your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they agreed to do so. They said to one another, Alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this anguish has come upon us. Then Reuben answered, him, answered them, Did I not tell you not to wrong the boy, but you would not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them since he spoke with them through an interpreter. He turned away from them and wept. Then he returned and spoke to them. And he picked out Simeon and had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to return every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. So, such a good story, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna read the entire thing pretty much because it's so good. The brothers are feeling guilty, right? So in this moment, there could be any number of reasons why the brothers think that Joseph is doing this, but what comes to their mind first? They did something wrong to Joseph, and now they are getting the payback, right? They treated Joseph badly, and now they are in quite the pickle. Joseph knows this, and so just as clarity, right? So Joseph is there in Egypt, and Joseph is almost certainly speaking Egyptian, right? He's speaking the native tongue. And so when people come to him, he is speaking Egyptian to them, and interpreters are helping interpret to the other languages. So rather than speaking the native tongue to his brothers, he is still speaking Egyptian and interpreters interpreting, but when the brothers talk amongst themselves, Jacob, I'm sorry, Joseph understands because Joseph knows that language. And so he's really getting inside their heads in a way that they don't understand or anticipate or expect because they don't realize that Joseph is like them. So the brothers feel very guilty and Joseph begins to play a game with them. And this is kind of a dangerous game. Joseph, remember, is wanting his brothers to repent. He wants his brothers to have learned their lesson, to have become better people, to want to be better people than when they sold him into slavery. And so he binds up Simeon and keeps him as a hostage so that they have to go back and get Benjamin. Let's jump down to verse 35. So the brothers have left Simeon behind. They've gone back home. As, verse 35, as they were emptying their sacks, there in each one sack was his bag of money. When they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. And their father Jacob said to them, I am the one who you have bereaved of children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has happened to me. Then Reuben said to his father, you may kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son, but Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should come to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Okay. So in this moment, Joseph sent them back home to get Benjamin. But Jacob says, no way right? Joseph and Benjamin are the two sons of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, the one he truly loves. He's already lost Joseph. He is not losing Benjamin. In effect, what Jacob has said is, I'd rather just go ahead and lose Simeon than lose Benjamin too, or lose Simeon over Benjamin. So Jacob is just not, Jacob's not really good at this. Jacob still plays favorites, right? He played favorites with Joseph, and he seems to be playing favorites now in Joseph's place with Benjamin. So he would rather lose one of the other sons than to lose the only other son of Rachel's that he has left, Benjamin. Reuben, however, has really figured out what he needs to do. Reuben wants to save Benjamin and Simeon. And he says to Joseph, I mean, he says to Jacob, I will take Benjamin's life in my hands and to show you that I am very serious, that I am, I will do everything in my power to keep Benjamin safe. 
I promise that if something happens to Benjamin, you can kill my own sons. That's a big gamble. Now, you might be saying Jacob would not kill his grandsons. Well, I don't know. Who knows? Um, We won't find out, thankfully. So they return home. And the other big thing that happens here that I don't want to miss is as they empty their grain, empty their sacks of grain, right? Because remember, the whole point of this is they wanted to go to Egypt and buy some grain so they don't starve. They're given grain to take home. But on top of the grain in the bags, these big, heavy bags of grain is the money they were supposed to use to buy the grain. So when they get home with these big, heavy bags of grain and they're emptying out all the grain, their money is still there. And so now they're doubly scared because they think that the Egyptians will think that they've stolen this grain. Even if they intended to pay, if the Egyptians say, well, no, you didn't pay. And even if it was their mistake, they could be blamed, right? They could kill Simeon because of that mistake. And so they're afraid of it. So let's keep going because I'm running out of time. So the famine in the land gets no better. And so even though Jacob said initially, you cannot go and take Benjamin, I'd rather Simeon just die in Egypt. The brothers finally come back to Jacob and say, we have to go back. We have to get more grain. We will not survive this famine. We will all starve. And so they finally go and say to, um, and go back to Egypt. So look at verse 40, I'm sorry, chapter 43, verse eight. Judah said to his father, Israel, who is Jacob, send the boy with me and let us be on our way so that we may live and not die. You and we and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You can hold me accountable for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him free, then you let, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits from the land in your bags and carry them down as a present to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, resin, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the top of your sacks because perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and be on your way again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he may send back Send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took the present and they took double the money with them as well as Benjamin. Then they went on their way back down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So in effect, what has happened here is Judah has done what Reuben tried to do, right? When they first got home, Reuben said, listen, it's on me. Let Benjamin come. And if I don't protect Benjamin, then it's on me. That did not work. Now, later, sometime later, they've run out of food again. And Judah says, listen, dad, it's on me. If anything happens to Benjamin, you can punish me. And ultimately that works. And so Judah now has taken on the responsibility of making things right, of repenting, of really articulating and living out this brotherhood, this fraternal repentance to Joseph for what they did. And we know that Judah is prepared for that, right? Remember a few chapters ago, I think chapter 40, 38, 9, something like that. Um, Judah and Tamar, that story that was just a big hot mess. Judah has been humbled because of all of this messiness with Tamar. Judah is ready to be the one who claims the repentance that Joseph is looking for. And here he does. So I want to pause and take stock of this story for a second. The brothers all go back down to Egypt and Joseph sees that Benjamin is with them. I want, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this, but I want to say here that Joseph is owning the repentance that his brothers should make. We, as human people, just like Joseph, are often put in a very similar predicament, right? Joseph has been wronged, no doubt, right? Joseph has been wronged. Joseph now has the ability to forgive the people who wronged him. But what Joseph is doing is saying, you don't get that for free, right? You've got to earn it. You've got to repent. You've got to actually bring something to the table to show me that you are sorry, Joseph is, in effect, kind of playing this game with his brothers, trying to get them to repent properly. If you were in Joseph's shoes, 
there's a question you can ponder this week because we're going to keep going with this story next week. If you were in Joseph's shoes, what would you do? Would you play these games? Would you propose some kind of way for them to prove that they are truly sorry? And I offer that question to you because I would argue we are in that position all the time. We may not be in the position as grand and as um, huge as what Joseph is in, but every day we are in this kind of position multiple times where someone has done something wrong, maybe to us, against us, around us, to someone else, whatever. And we have a chance to bear forgiveness to them. Do we set people up to have to jump through hoops, to prove that they are sorry, to prove that they genuinely repent? Or do we just simply offer the forgiveness? I think it's important for us to always remember that as we read through these Old Testament stories, we should read through them with the lenses of Jesus, right? As New Testament people, we've been given a revelation of God through Christ that is different, perhaps, than the way that people in the Old Testament interpreted and understood God. We are seeing the way that the Jews understood God in exile, right? They are effectively putting God in the place of Joseph in this moment, and they're, they're showing that their belief in God is that when we do wrong, the onus is on us to repent and return and prove and make right in order to earn God's forgiveness back. Yet what we see in the gospel from Jesus is not quite that same thing. We, when we do wrong, we do need to be sorry for that wrong. But it is not, God does not hold forgiveness over us as something to earn. God's forgiveness is given. We, in our own transformation, in our own discipleship, are invited to repent and work out and make right whatever has gone wrong, whatever is on us. But God does not withhold that forgiveness. God does not withhold grace and love from us in order for us to earn it. No, God's given that to us. Being sorry is really all that's required. All right. I see a question from Sally. Found it strange that Joseph's shrewdness to store grain in Egypt's wealth um, because written it's a good thing or a God thing. And yet... It's the thing that leads to the eventual enslavement of the Israelite people. Ah, yeah, that's great. You know, I have run out of time. And so we're just going to pause this second return to Egypt. We'll get to that next week. And I'd love to answer this question as we end today's study. Yes, Joseph is seen as a very good actor here. Joseph is seen as someone who is doing God's work, saving the grain and storing the grain in order to help meet the needs of the people around but, as Sally points out, rightly, because Egypt has stored the grain, because Joseph is doing this work, that's ultimately what brings Jacob and his whole family to Egypt. And fast forward 400 years, we get the Exodus, where they have been enslaved as servants to the Egyptians for 400 years. Joseph's work at interpreting the dream and then executing the interpretation is actually what is necessary to get the Hebrews to Egypt. And so it's very interesting that the storytellers write this story in such a way that seems to show that that's God at work. Why then would God have teed up a situation that brings the Hebrew people underneath the umbrella of enslavement in Egypt? It's a very good question. My quick answer, and I'll ponder and maybe say more about this next week, is that ultimately they all know the story, right? These people in exile are writing the story and they know what happens. It's important for them that God be the strongest, right? And so although these stories are very good, the story, the big story is Moses leading the people out of Egypt, <clears throat> that is what anchors and roots everything about Judaism in that first phase of Jewish identity. Everything is rooted in the Exodus and in Moses. And so without Moses and the Exodus, 
they are, they don't have the anchor, the faith anchor that they need to be good Jewish people. Even though Joseph is doing a good thing that ultimately ends up bringing them into Egypt and having them be servants, it is human failure, human mistakes, human wrong that actually take them from being honored in the Egyptian culture to being slaves in the Egyptian culture. And uh, we don't really get to that in Genesis, but part of the Exodus story, especially in the first couple chapters, is this idea that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were not always treated badly, that it was really the humanity, the human messiness of the Egyptians, and certainly perhaps the Israelites and their interactions, that over the course of four centuries separated them from one another in a way that created the horrible situation they were in before Moses comes on the scene. And so all of that is to say, even though Joseph's actions may be the impetus behind them coming to Egypt, it doesn't make Joseph's actions wrong. It makes Joseph's actions godly, and then humans mess it up later. And man, doesn't that sound right? All right, everyone. Happy Easter to all of you. Happy Wednesday to all of you. Um, I hope that you have a very good week wherever you are. I'm praying for you all. Please pray for me, for all of us here at St. Michael. And I look forward to the last two weeks of our Bible study. That's going to be April 22nd and April 29th, where we close up Genesis this month. So join me back here next week, 1030 a.m. for the penultimate Bible study lesson. Good to see you all. Bye.